It's Monday, May 25th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. This week, two NASA astronauts are about to take part in one of the biggest space flights in a decade. Bob Benkin and Doug Hurley will be launching on the inaugural flight of SpaceX's Crew Dragon spacecraft to the International Space Station. While both men have experience in going to space already, there are some differences this time. One key thing, the astronauts have had to learn how to manually fly the ship with just touchscreen. Lauren Grush, senior science reporter at The Verge, joins us for more on the Crew Dragon launch. Next, coronavirus has been tearing through jails and prisons across the country. A recent analysis by Reuters has found that there has been an undercounting of COVID-19 cases in the system and that some state prisons are seeing infection rates of up to 65%. While there is a worry that inmates could be getting ill in such close quarters, the other concern is all of the corrections officers and workers that could also be infected and then spread the virus throughout their communities. Research shows that the majority of those infected have been asymptomatic. Linda So, reporter for Reuters, joins us for how coronavirus is spreading in jails and prisons. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I gotta believe that's a help. It absolutely right? is a help. I think we're way past the polite stage in our relationship. <laughs> I'm not looking for romance from Doug. I'm not looking for surprises in our relationship. We don't give up and uh, we like a big challenge and by gosh, we, we certainly got one. Joining us now is Lauren Grush, senior science reporter at The Verge. Thanks for joining us, Lauren. Thanks for having me. We got some really cool space news coming up. The first NASA astronauts uh, will be launching into orbit from the United States in uh, more than a decade. They're going to be launching on SpaceX's Crew Dragon spacecraft. Uh, I think it's going to be happening on May 27th. It's going to be some really interesting stuff. Uh, Lauren, tell us a little bit about what's going on. Right. So you've said it. This is uh, such a huge launch for the United States. It's the first time that people have launched to orbit from American soil since 2011, when the last space shuttle launched from Florida. And it's going to be the first time that a private company, not the government, has launched uh, these people from uh, America to Earth, to Earth orbit. Yeah, I mean, usually these anytime that an American astronaut has gone into space, it's been do, it's been done from Kazakhstan. Um, they we've had to hitch rides on Russian Soyuz capsules to get up there. Uh, you know, obviously it costs a bunch of money. So this is the first time that it, a private company is doing it for us. And hopefully, I think this is kind of what's going to be the norm. I think this is going to be the future where we're doing it with private companies, NASA, in conjunction with NASA. You're right. Yeah, up in for most of spaceflight history, NASA has been in charge of the production and the design of its spacecraft. But with this program, the commercial crew program that this that is launching uh, this vehicle, the idea was why not get the private sector to be in charge of the production, be in charge of the design. NASA will partially invest. They'll put up some money, money, but the private companies will also put in their own money, hopefully to get some cost savings. And yeah, once they are done with the vehicles, this is SpaceX's vehicle. It's not NASA's vehicle. SpaceX owns this. It, they operate the vehicle. And so uh, the idea was, you know, once they are done, they could then uh, take this vehicle and potentially make a profit with it by, you know, selling private tickets on it, you know, space tourism. For now, they're they're focused on launching NASA astronauts, but the, the goal is much bigger than that. So tell us about the two astronauts that are going up into space. I think they're going to the International Space Station. And uh, then tell us about the spacecraft itself, because it's 
pretty different from uh, the old school government sh- uh, you know, made shuttles privately built by SpaceX. You know, the old shuttles have a bunch of toggles and buttons and everything. This is mostly run off of touchscreens. Yeah, they can, yeah. they can even pilot the space, this space shuttle manually with the touchscreens. Yeah, I, that's what's so jarring about it when you see it is the, the how minimal it is. You know, I got a, an up close look at a simulator, and yeah, there really really isn't a lot to it. It's it's a very sleek design, and I think that was a little jarring for some of the astronauts too because they are so used to switches and toggles and you know joysticks. Even there's no joysticks in here. I think um, at a minimum, I think I still want a joystick just in case something goes wrong. <laughs> I know. I feel. I think if I were a pilot, I'd feel the same way too. Too. But um, one of the astronauts actually even mentioned that. He said, you know, I, I, it took me a little while to kind of get over the fact that I, I wouldn't have that control. Um, but then he was able to kind of figure out how to maneuver with just the screens alone. Um, and then back to your other question, the two astronauts that are going up, they're Bob Bankin and Doug Hurley. They're both uh, veteran flyers fr- from NASA, and they've both flown on the space shuttle twice. And one great thing I love about them is they're both really good friends. They were in each other's weddings, and they're both married to astronauts from their same class when yeah. they were all picked together back in 2000. So they, they are very close, and they make a very good team and work well together. Yeah, that, I, that, I found that uh, quite interesting, too, just married all keeping it all within that uh, you know astronaut family there which is kind of cool. Right. Um one of the interesting things about this though uh this particular one is that uh, th- there's been a lot of delays in this uh, you know on behalf of SpaceX whatever happened but well, the other thing is that now since things have been delayed so much and uh, the current status of astronauts that uh the United States has at the International Space Station they don't know when they're going to be coming back home this was supposed to be like a one week maybe two week thing they might be there for a few months because we don't have a big presence right now in the International Space Station. Exactly. Yeah, this launch was supposed to just be a week or two. In in essence, it's a test. You know, this isn't this wasn't supposed to be a full-fledged mission. It's really meant to prove whether or not the Crew Dragon is capable of carrying humans and then to certify it for doing regular flights to and from the International Space Station. But there were delays with this program. It, originally, these spacecraft were supposed to fly in 2017. But as with any vehicle development, there's hiccups, there's bumps along the road. Things stretched on longer than NASA anticipated. And so NASA had only bought a certain number of seats with Russian vehicles up until a certain point. They've tried to stretch that out as long as possible. They've actually just bought another seat for the fall on a, on a Russian vehicle, just in case there are further delays. But yeah, we've dwindled down to just one crew member, one American crew member on the International Space Station. So they decided that they were going to stretch out this mission so that we could have people on the station, more people on the station for longer. And once they're up there, NASA will make the decision of when they think it's best for them to come home. And the last question I have, just because, you know, it's everywhere right now, how has coronavirus impacted the way this mission is? I know you know, uh, when they first got assigned this mission, they were, you know, uh, getting excited because they were going to be doing this out of Florida and family and friends were saying, hey, can we come and watch? And, and I know the general public out there in that area likes to watch these space launches, but that might not be the case this time around, you know, the way social distancing is working. And I know Florida's reopening, but, you know, are people going to be able to watch this in person? 
Well, that's not what NASA wants. NASA has urged members of the general public not to come, not to travel to this launch and see it with their own two eyes. And they've also closed off a lot of access at Kennedy Space Center, Kennedy Space Center where this launch is taking place from. Uh, at the same time, you know, the training schedules have had to be uh, amended a little bit. They, the astronauts were talking about how they've been traveling back and forth between Houston and Hawthorne, where SpaceX is located, and do, to do their training. And they've had to make adjustments to make sure that they didn't get people sick while they were there. So they've tried to maintain their distance. At the same time, NASA is making modifications to the mission control area, spacing things apart, maybe putting up plexiglass to barriers to make sure that there's no um, disease spread. So, you know, they they really were not anticipating this, who was, um, but they have put precautions in place. And it just remains to be seen if they can stop an influx of people coming to Florida, because, yeah. you know, this is such a big deal. And I know that a lot of people are really excited to see it in person. Well, May 27th is the day. Hopefully everything goes according to plan. We'll be watching Lauren Grush, senior science reporter at The Verge. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And it's not just the inmates who are of concern here. What we also found is that there are thousands of workers, correctional officers who are working in these facilities, medical staff who day in and day out, they report to work, go to jail. At the end of the day, they leave and they can carry it back to the community. So this isn't only a concern for the inmates in the jail, but it is for the greater population because of the risk that these people who are moving in and out of these facilities can become vectors or pathways, so to speak. Joining us now is Linda So, reporter at Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Linda. Great to be here. wanted to talk about coronavirus and what's going on in U.S. jails and prisons. We've been hearing a lot about it. A lot of times these people are forgotten in a lot of this. Some people don't care because they might be criminals, et cetera, et cetera. But up until now, what we had been hearing is that prisons and jails are fertile ground for coronavirus to spread. There was even a string of headlines where there was a lot of inmates being released because of COVID-19 worries. But there at Reuters, you guys took a, a deep look into a lot of different aspects of the jail and prison system and are just finding out that there is a lot more people that are getting infected in there than official numbers would really state. So, Linda, tell us a little bit about the research you guys did and, and some of the findings. So the CDC had conducted a survey where they reached out to all the health departments nationwide to get numbers on the number of infected inmates throughout all the correctional facilities in the U.S. And they had 37 of those agencies respond and reported just under 5,000 inmate cases. What we did at Reuters is we conducted a far smaller survey and found well over three times that number, about 17,300 cases. So it was illuminating in the way that a lot of these places, because many jails in the U.S. don't make their numbers public, they're not known. So what we found in this far smaller survey is there are a lot of cases that are going unreported. Very similar in the way we've been following numbers for the general population, you know, outside of these prisons and jails. A lot of it has to do with testing and testing as many people as possible. And a lot of jails weren't really doing that. First off, tests were hard to come by for the jail population. But secondly, they would be testing people that only had symptoms when a lot of people were pushing for everybody in these systems to be tested. 
So as part of the survey, we looked into that. And what we found was many jails continue to only test their inmates if they are showing symptoms. A lot of we documented 10 state prison systems that have widened testing and they are conducting a form of mass testing where they're testing all their inmates, even if they aren't showing symptoms. And so for those facilities that are mass testing, there were infection rates at about 65%. So it just goes to show that because many of these jails aren't testing all of their inmates, they're only testing if you're showing certain symptoms, there's a drastic undercount. Have you gotten any response from the CDC as far as to the discrepancy in these numbers? So the CDC, as part of their report, did acknowledge that only 37 of those agencies that they surveyed responded. So it was based on those numbers. Let's talk a little bit more about what's going on at these facilities. The U.S. has more people behind bars than any other nation. I think as of 2018, the numbers were 2.2 million. And there's a difference between jails and prisons and how the possible spread of coronavirus could work out there. Tell us a little bit about that. So when you think about the spread of coronavirus within these facilities, it doesn't just affect the inmates. First of all, jails are generally places where inmates go for a short period of time. They're either awaiting arrest or they're serving short sentences. So there's a constant churn of inmates going in and out. And so they become pathways of spreading this virus. If they're released from the jail and go back into the community, they become pathways to spread it in the community. And it's not just the inmates who are of concern here. What we also found is that there are thousands of workers, correctional officers who are working in these facilities, medical staff, who day in and day out, they report to work, go to jail. At the end of the day, they leave and they can carry it back to the community. So this isn't only a concern for the inmates in the jail, but it is for the greater population because of the risk that these people who are moving in and out of these facilities can become vectors or pathways, so to speak. We mentioned testing a little bit. How has testing been going for the correctional workers? We highlighted one jail in our story, Wayne County Jail in Detroit, Michigan. And the chief of jails there had expressed to us that when this pandemic first began in March, the facility had a hard time. It was very challenging to get their hands on tests. And so for their correctional officers, they weren't able to provide widespread testing. If you recall, in the early phases of this pandemic, it was a struggle for anyone to get tests. You had to show specific symptoms. And if you weren't showing those specific symptoms, you were denied testing. And that was the case at Wayne County, which ended up they lost two medical workers and a commander and a deputy. And so the chief of jails there told us that part of the challenge was because they couldn't provide testing for their staff members, it was very hard to get a handle on the spread of the virus. Yeah, and that's such a critical part because, as you mentioned earlier, those are the people that are going home at the end of the day and could be getting it out into the community. You know, when they're working all day in such close quarters with everybody, then they go home, then those are the people that are spreading it around. So yeah, that widespread testing for the workers is critical. And then another aspect of this whole thing with the jail and prison system, obviously I mentioned the headlines and so many inmates being released from the systems to help reduce the overcrowding there because there was a lot of times where people were still in, you know, three people to a cell, et cetera, things like that. So tell us a little bit about that, about the release of all these inmates. 
So there were calls to release inmates, those who perhaps are older and more vulnerable and those with underlying conditions. But what we found in reporting our story is that these correctional facilities, not all of them had standard procedures for releasing inmates. So for instance, we highlight Weld County Jail in Colorado in our story, where there were several inmates, one who ended up dying. He had COVID-19. He left the jail and he died. However, from what we found, there was no standard procedure in ensuring that when he was released, he was not given any medical care. He came into contact with other people. So that's another risk when you think about these inmates who are leaving these facilities. They too could become a vector or a pathway of spreading it because not all jails have a standard procedure to medically screen these inmates as they're leaving. I know there was a lot of fur about it. There was a lot of victims' rights groups that were also really mad that some of these inmates were being released and people weren't getting notified. So I know that was another big angle to all of this. There have been some victims' rights groups who have expressed their concerns that not all crime victims were being notified when these inmates were being let out question about some other findings that possibly could have come out. Were you finding that some of these inmates were either displaying asymptomatically or were they getting very sick and ill and requiring hospitalizations? Did any of that come out in your research? We did focus on 10 state prison systems who were conducting mass testing. And interestingly, we found that a high percentage of these inmates were asymptomatic. So in Michigan State, their correctional facility decided to mass test at many of their facilities because they really thought we couldn't get a handle on this disease if we don't know who has it. So they began the mass testing, which revealed a high rate of asymptomatic inmates. And the concern was for many of these correctional facilities, it's hard to contain the spread if you really don't know who has it. So that really was a big factor in their decision to go ahead with mass testing in many of their facilities. And as a result of all of this, there's more than 100 lawsuits nationwide, and a lot of them are class action lawsuits. You know, they're still asking for more mass releases of inmates or other measures to reduce overcrowding and the infection risks in these jails. Those lawsuits continue. The fight continues. And again, there's a lot of push and pull. Some of those victims' rights groups, like we mentioned before, are fighting against it because they believe that there's a risk if you release these inmates. But a lot of other organizations like the ACLU, they're really fighting for the release because many of these inmates are medically vulnerable or, again, the older population who are more at risk. And what kind of reaction have you gotten so far to this special report that you guys did? Just from reading, I can see that the prison officials obviously feel like they could be at wit's end, maybe. You know, they don't know exactly what's happening. They're trying to get a handle on the testing and they're fearful for themselves and for their workers and and even the inmates. But what other kind of reactions have you gotten to this? One of the important things that have come out from this is the fact that the outbreak in these jails doesn't just affect the people who are held behind bars. But again, it's those inmates who may be leaving the jails and the medical workers and the correctional officers who are leaving every day who can carry it back out to the community. I suggest everybody go out and and read the report by Linda and there at Reuters. There's a lot of pretty stark numbers with regards to what's going on in the jail and prison population. Linda So, reporter at Reuters, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at 
Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez. This was your Daily Dive.